Hey there. It's so great to have you here with us today. One Chapel is a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area, and we help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. You can learn more about the things God is doing in this community and how to get involved at onechapel.com. I hope you enjoy this week's message from our Who Am I series. So we've been in this series called Who Am I? And it's so great because this identity question is so big for us, right? And uh, it's, it's such a, a huge question in our lives to discover and to figure out. And, and it's a journey. And you, you sort of peel back the layers. So each week, we've been sort of peeling away the concepts. We've been addressing different ideas. And the first week, we, we did well, who am I when I feel like I don't measure up? And the second week we did, who am I when I'm compared to others? Pastor Rob Stennett did a brilliant job on that. Uh, Who am I when I feel alone was the third week. Who am I when I failed was the next week. And then Pastor Jansen Riles, our student ministries pastor, he spoke last week on who am I when I don't feel happy. And so today we're going to look at the question, who am I with my family? Yeah, that's what I thought too. Who am I with my family? It's a big subject. It's a huge topic. We could spend a whole series on it, but we won't do that today. We're just going to have this time together. And so let's pray and let's ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, we thank you for your word and that the entrance of it gives light to every one of us. Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself. Speak to us. Let us hear your voice, not just mine. And would you call us forward? Would you move us forward? Would you help us to define ourselves as your word describes, even in the midst of our family? We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Parsley household, we have a few fun stories we like to tell. I'm going to tell you one of our favorites. The whimpering started first. Just an annoying sound coming from down the hall in the darkness. Surprisingly, I ended up waking up first. I usually sleep like a rock, but my wife Amy either didn't wake up or she was faking. (laughs) But I laid very still, hoping she would hear it so that I wouldn't have to go comfort whoever was doing the annoying moaning coming from down the hall. And so Saturday nights are weird at our house, at a pastor, any pastor's house, but with five kids, there was a season in our lives where it seemed like somebody always was waking up. And so annoying, funny how it never seemed to happen on Monday nights. Anyway, the moaning didn't stop. It got louder and, and, and it kind of grew. It turned into a full-scale cry and finally a blood-curdling scream. And my youngest sons, Ethan and Owen, uh, were crying when I stumbled into the room and kind of turned on the light. Ethan was on the top bunk, and he was holding his stomach, and, and uh, he was kind of crying and saying his stomach hurt, and, and Owen was on the bottom bunk, and he was crying because he'd been w- woken up, and he was kind of deliriously freaked out. And so I, I started towards Ethan, and as I came towards him, over the railing of the top bunk, he threw up the biggest throw up I've ever seen out of a little kid. And it was like a, it was like an arc. It was like, boom. 
I, as I was coming for him, I felt the spray of vomit on my face. This is how disgusting it was. And then Owen starts screaming. He's like, my eyes, my eyes. He, he even threw up in my eyes. It was, so, it was so disgusting. By this time, Amy had arrived at the doorway down the hall. And after a moment of shock, she just broke into laughing at us. And so the boys go into the tub. 2 a.m. in the morning, I'm scrubbing carpets and cleaning up beds. What is this? This is a family. And families are a mess. They're a mess, and they're a mess for several reasons. You, you belong to a family, and I always challenge people. You think about your family, and, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily choose them. But you have them. And the thing about families, the reason it's so messy is because they know the dirt on you. You know the dirt on them. Like you, they, there's, a, there's something that you are your most vulnerable with a family. And they may even know you as a person you're trying not to be anymore. Because the truth is, all of us when we're born, we're handed a script. Somebody hands us a script. A family member, an older sibling, a mom or a dad, a coach or a teacher, they hand us a script and we become actors in this play of life. We become someone we're not supposed to be. And today I want to talk about our identity within our family and how to hand back that script. How to deal with the struggle within a family because families are God-given. He's interested in working in your family. He's working in you, within your family. And how does that work? Because families are supposed to be a place where you are known and loved anyway. That's why Psalm 68, 4 through 6 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It starts with this. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds, rejoice before him, his name is the Lord. What's the big deal? Why, 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 why the singing? Why all this celebration? Why rejoice? I think it's found in, chap in verse 5. The next verse, it says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. A way to think about this might be wherever orphans are cared for and widows are defended, that's where God's presence is. Wherever God is and by extension, wherever God's people are, wherever God's family is, that's where people are defended and cared for. Verse 6 is my favorite. It's kind of the point. God sets the lonely in families. And he leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. So many of us may be living in a sun-scorched land within our own families. But God has a plan for your family. He's a plan for you. And I think this is, this is physical and spiritual in this verse. Like there's a physical idea that God designed for you in families. And then there's a spiritual concept that you, many of you found a spiritual family when you came to one chapel. You found your place when you came to Jesus. 
And here, you are part of a family where you are known and loved. And this verse is so powerful if you understand the strength of families. If you understand the blessing of a family, this is like so encouraging, but what if you don't have any model for this kind of family? What, what if your model of family is dysfunctional? Because when it comes to a family, so much of what we experience is dysfunction. It's typically people we care deeply about, we love deeply, we value them, but along the way we become shaped by the presence or even the absence of a loving family. I come from a divorced family. My, my parents were pastors and 18 years into the marriage, there was no immorality or abuse, there was, but there was a, a long process of problematic communication and connection. I was 17 years old and everything that I knew as sturdy and stable suddenly was not. And I, I'm marked by it. It marked me as a 17-year-old. I still deal with it to this very day. And I've overcome a lot of that, a lot of that, that filter. That filter looks something like this. It's like anything good that happens, here's what goes on in my mind. I wonder how long this is going to last. Yeah, I know. That's why I married an optimist. <laughs> you guys need to pray for her. I work my way, I, but I've worked my way. I've overcome it. And what I found, not only in the overcoming have I found God and his grace and his identity, but I've also become a source of ministry and compassion for others who have also suffered, who have struggled. I've seen it. Now, for many of us, we, we don't even know the basics, right? I, 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 we haven't had a basic understanding transferred in our culture of what a family should look like, and there's a bunch of confusion about it. As someone who's worked with families a lot, I see the hurt and I see the crisis. I find a lot of people asking this question, the really basic question, what is a family? What does it look like? I know for many of you, even as I say the word family, there's pain attached, pain associated with it. It brings up this, this conflict in your thoughts and your emotions, and, and the family still may be something you care so much about. A family is something you are motivated by, it may be the most important set of relationships to you, but at the same time, you may feel inadequate. You may have a lot of pain, or you may have unmet expectations, or you may see the challenges and the dysfunction. They're staring you right in the face. And so, so many of you, you're here and you're like, Pastor Ross, give me some hope. <laughs> give some hope and some answers. If you're looking for hope, look to the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian believers, and it centers around this theme of who am I? We're going to read from chapter 3 in a moment, but if you were to sum up the book of Ephesians over and over again, the Apostle Paul uses two words to kind of sum up what he's talking about. And those two words are in Christ. Say it with me. In Christ. You are in him because of what he's done for you. Because he gave his life. Because he paid for the penalty of sin 
you were separated. He drew you to himself. He drew you to the heavenly father. And, and you are now in him and he is in you. There's a uniting with Christ that the, Ephesian, the, the letter to the Ephesian people, Paul is trying to get across. You are united with this one, this savior, this healer, this redeemer, this restorer. You're united with him. And that, of course, is where you find the answer to the who am I question. You find it in Jesus. You don't find it anywhere else because when all is said and done for the Christian, for those who will follow Jesus, it is this relationship with the family of God in Christ that makes the difference, that determines your identity and who you really are. Here in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks so much about the home. He, he talks to kids and he talks to, to moms and, and wives and husbands and dads. He talks to, to families. And so he addresses these believers in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. It'll be on the screen. Here's what it says. It says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. This is one of the most famous prayers in the whole New Testament. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Well, that's pretty powerful. That means that God has de designed and called your family by name. The Father has given a name to your family. And so when you say, man, I need some hope, I, I need some help, Every family can have here on earth the establishment of God's desires, of God's patterns, and God's order because he's the one who names it. Right. He's the one who created it. He's the one who designed the very idea of family. He brings authority to it and defines it. This, this, and, and when I say this, this may even bring out the question in a greater measure, like who am I? Because, man, my family's messed up. Because think about it, when you're, when you're single, right, the question is, who am I in my singleness? I, as I become an adult, how do I find my identity in Christ when it seems like everybody around me is trying to define me by my relationship status? If you get married, the questions don't stop because now there's another person. You have two individuals, you're like, who am I now? Who am I when this person who I care about their opinions, I care about what they say, and they don't say the right things to me all the time. They're not providing me for me or the answer to the who am I question. And then about the time you start to figure out the marriage thing, then kids might come along and, and now even more of your independence is taken away. And you have this little creature that's 100% dependent on you. You have, when you have one kid, you know what you call that? An accessory. <laughs> but then they bring reinforcements and more come along. And a lot of times as parents, we become outnumbered and we got to move from a man to man to a zone defense. <laughs> They're expensive little creatures. They're complex with all these different personalities and you don't get a manual. You don't get a how-to booklet. And so you're like, I don't want to mess them up. And so now you're asking your own identity questions, but now you're in charge of shaping someone else's. That'll mess you up. And then what happens if the marriage falls apart? Now, now who am I? When the marriage doesn't work, so many people, they have the challenge of, 
of, in their marriage and the, or they get divorced and are single again. And now the question becomes, am I defined by this? Is there hope past this? What do I do now? Well, who, who am I now? It's a good question. What, what about if I'm widowed? Who am I now? What about if I'm a single mom or a single dad? Who am I now? Who, how do people see me? Uh, am I accepted anymore just the way I am? am I, can I be part of something? I don't fit in with this group. I don't seem to fit in with that group. Who am I? What do I do? Who am I with these kids? And so all along the way, we're looking for hope. All along the way, no matter what our circumstance is, we can't look downward. We can't look inward. We have to look upward. We have to look to God who gives us some answers. We have to find the answers. Many times we have to start, though, with the right premise. Sometimes we're looking for the answers with the wrong premise. and We have to, we have to start with a basic foundation. A lot of people think you can feel your way through this. You know, wherever, wherever, wherever I feel like I have family, hey, listen, you can't, you can't build the foundation of a family just by your feelings or your opinions. You need something greater than feelings or opinions. You have to have principles. You have to have something. You can't just feel and flow your way through this because challenges are coming. And these are challenges you don't know how to solve, and so you need a bedrock foundation, something that is secure, and that's why you have to find it in Christ for yourself. No matter how messed up your family is, he has a purpose and a plan for your identity and your influence on the family you belong to, whether you're a grandparent or a teenager or a mom or a dad or you're, or you're a single person who's finding your way in adulthood. You have an influential opportunity in the family you came from. But you got to build it on something solid. And we're, this building we're sitting in here today, it's so beautiful. It's wonderful. It was, it was designed. And there's, a, there's a, underneath this thing, they worked a long time on something called the foundation. And the foundation, they worked with the soil. They made sure it was right. They made sure it had the right amount of, uh, of, uh, of uh, different components in it, including the, 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 um, the, the water in it and the, the how much, how, how dry it is. And they, they, com they, they worked on it. They made it proper. They dug a deep hole. For a long time, it was just a deep hole. That's the problem with foundation. For a long time, it just looks like a deep hole, a deep muddy hole. But then they poured the concrete and then they, they poured this concrete and then they started building the walls according to some precise principles. Make every wall as straight as you can. Figure out how to make sure the ground is level, the, 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 the foundation is strong and sturdy and won't crumble. See, this is principle-based. Now, the building looks nice in here, doesn't it? Some people have decorated in here. The, the walls look nice, and there's lights, and there's all this nice stuff. But it could be hiding some terrible things behind the walls. See, because, because I, I, very often decor is not necessarily principle-based. Now, don't email me. I know it has principles. Okay? So, so, so when, you do, when you design and decorate, it has, there are principles that you stick to. But there is a sense at which 
um, there's a, a lot of different dynamics that happen with soil and construction and foundations. You can decorate on persuasion and what you enjoy. You can decorate on your opinion, but you can't build on your opinion. You can't build on opinion. You, you build on some principles and some foundational non-negotiables that are true all the time. When it comes to family, that's what we got to do. We got to anchor ourselves to something greater because no other environment in our lives shape our identity more than our family. That's why it's critical to understand God's pattern. Everybody say pattern. Pattern. So I thought we'd look at, the, go back to the original design and the original pattern. Look at Genesis 1:27 through 28. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So notice here, God says he created mankind in his own image. Now, by the way, none of us are perfect. None of your families are perfect. All right. But there's a, there's a reflection of his image. The family he wants to create is going to have some problems. Your family has some problems, but when we lean into his pattern, when we lean into his design, that the more we reflect his image. And so the more we accept his pattern, the more we reflect the designer um, and the creator of all things. So the next verse says he created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God blessed them. This is the cool thing, is when you do, when you build your family according to God's design, there's blessing in it. He blesses what he designs. And we can't decorate according to our opinion or ask him to sign off and just ask him to sign off on it. When we're building, we have to build according to his design. God blessed them, it says, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now that's a mandate to be fruitful and to rule. Everybody say rule. Adam and Eve ruled. They totally ruled. They rule over, over the earth and over the garden they were placed in. Now, here's the thing you've got to get. There's authority in this idea for you. There's authority in God's design and pattern. Authority is not control. See, that's the problem with a lot of us. We're trying to control our families. We're trying to control our kids. We're trying to control what our parents do. We're trying to control everything about what's going on around us. Try to control our spouse. Control is not authority. A lot of people struggle in the area of family because they're addicted to control. They're just like, I feel like an idiot. I don't know how to work this out. It's, but there's a dynamic when, in our families. And, and if it's these people and their personalities and they're interacting all the time. We, we want to fix it and we want to control it. When in reality... You don't need more control. What you need is more authority to be the person God created you to be. To now, think about what the authority is what comes from God. Authority is not changing somebody else. Authority is influencing and reigning in the atmosphere that God blesses. Right? And so... He says, look, I'm going to give you this mandate as a family. You're going to have authority, and you're going to bring my way into the world. That's what the design is. And later he talks about how he brings these two individuals, male and female, and, he, and who are, they're different, but they come together, and they're joined together in a covenant. And that covenant is kind of the underpinnings of the family and what God unites there. It's a miracle. The Bible describes it as becoming one flesh, and that's the foundational principle that we lean back on in the family. And when it comes to the home and family, I want you to know there are all kinds of principles, but it all starts with the foundation. It all starts with 
the beginning. It's, you got to come back to the starting point. And the foundation is most critical to what you're building. So the question today is, what are you building your family on? What are you, what are you building your family on? And, and we're all building something in the area of family. And so you're like, okay, okay, Ross, I get it. What does it really mean? <laughs> I take your word for it on the authority thing. I don't quite understand that, but okay, sure. Uh, how does God's authority work? How do we get his authority into my situation? I'm at odds with my wife or uh, my child's over here and she's just like totally messing up. She's doing her own thing. I got a problem struggling in this relationship. How does this practically work? You say God's pattern? What is that? How do we get it? The authority of God's pattern comes from his word. So you have to establish your family on the authority of God's word. Amen. It comes from the authority of God speaking into his family and each of us ruling and reigning within our sphere, our environments, no matter what chaos you've experienced in your family. So what that means practically is dad apologizes sometimes. You know, it's one of the things you, you parents... One of the best things you can do is apologize when you're wrong to your kids. Everybody thinks, everybody thinks that uh, kids do what their parents tell them. They don't do what you tell them. They do what you do. You got to model it for them. So dad, dad has to be under the authority of the word of God, and that means when he's wrong, he needs to admit it. I asked Amy, my wife, if I could tell some stories of our family dynamics. And uh, thankfully, most of them are about her. So, <laughs> so she gave me permission. And there's this one time when, when <laughs> the, the two oldest boys were younger. They were like 10 and 12, somewhere in there. And they're just bickering. They're fighting. And they are just going at it with each other. I mean, they won't stop. It's, she's been on them all day. She's talking to them. She's raising her voice. She's telling them to go to their room. She's, she's like, in this one moment, she just has had it. She's had it up to here. And she sends them up to upstairs. And they still don't f stop fighting. And she just screams it out. She says, Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> or I'm going to I'm going to beat the crap out of your butts. <laughs> I know. Sweet Amy. <laughs> now anatomically, I thought it was a weird phrase, spanking the crap out of their butts, but whatever. <laughs> this is a little weird. But sometimes it just goes all kinds of wrong. And families uh, are like this. You know, so, and so when you're, when, you're, when you're being under the authority of God's word, sometimes you've got to apologize. You've got to admit that you're wrong. And sometimes that means praying together as a family. Don't avoid it. Don't just do it over the food. Sometimes it might mean, uh, sometimes it might mean listening to the daily Bible reading together. Like, I know you've never heard about that, but this is a really great concept. That means coming to church consistently. Like, like, just let that be part of your forming and your formation as a family. I don't want anybody to feel condemned or guilty today, but I, you young families, there is a way that you can begin to base your family on the word of God. And because as your kids grow up, they're going to develop opinions. We can't build on opinions. We have to stand on the authority of the words. So, so let's look at it. Who am I with my family? Number one, your family Frames, not decides your identity. If you're, you're in the frame. There's a backdrop. 
There's a beautiful thing surrounding the picture. You're in the picture and it frames you, but it does not decide for you. You must decide. We're all products of our environment. There's no doubt about that. And our genetic makeup may come from our parents, but our family doesn't get to determine everything about our identity. How we talk about family, this is a this is something that touches all of us. It's something we all have in common because family relationships come into being no matter what part of the world you're in. We're all part of it. We're connected in some way. And the problem, though, with family is that you don't get to choose yours. It's chosen for you. And as that reality becomes clear to you, you didn't get to choose. But you do get to choose how you respond to your family. It's a powerful idea. You have a choice. Because God gave you a will that is so strong and powerful, you can choose. Because so much of life that we live, we don't get to choose. We, so much life just happens to us and then we have to choose within it. We get to choose how we're going to respond. Regardless of how damaged, broken, or abusive your family was or is, no matter how much therapy or counseling or recovery is required to overcome your family past, in spite of everything that is in your family history, you can make a decision about your identity. Why? Because as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, as a child who's been born into a new spiritual family, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to choose. He gives you the strength, the understanding to choose and to receive an inheritance in Christ. Everybody say inheritance. inheritance. Here it is in this Romans 8, 5 through 15 through 17. It says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Notice it presumes that you're living in fear. Some of you have lived in family fear for a long time. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. I, word Abba is a term of endearment. It is, it is an intimate idea. It's maybe translated better, Papa or Daddy, Father, the Spirit. Verse 16 says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's kids. We're his children. Now, if we are his kids, then we are Heirs, everybody say heirs. And heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What? If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Listen, there's suffering in your family, but you get to choose the inheritance of Christ. You get to choose because what co-heirs with Christ means is we have the same inheritance as Jesus. We have everything he has, we get. Everything that's available to him, the way he lived, we get to live that way. We get to receive that. All the rights, all the benefits, all the healing, all the redemption, all the restoration comes from Jesus himself. The, this Greek word for adoption to sonship is a term referring to the full legal standing. Paul's using a term, a full legal standing of the adopted male heir in Roman culture. It was legal and more binding than an actual birth son. The power of your identity in Christ is really incredible, but you have to receive it. You have to embrace it. Believe this and you'll begin to reflect the image of Jesus. 
Your family frames but does not decide for you. Number two, your spouse shapes, not defines your identity. Jerry Maguire was wrong. You are not completed by another person. That is not a a biblical concept. You are complete and whole of yourself because of what Christ does inside of you. We spend a lot of time and energy and money and all the resources trying to find the right person to build a wonderful life with a soulmate, but then real life happens, right? And, and, or we think the other person has changed. Or we think our needs changed. But look again at the book of Ephesians at how marriage is described in Ephesians 5, 21. Now notice verse 21. Out of respect for Christ... Be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her. Dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. And, And he goes on a little bit and talks about one flesh as we've referenced earlier. And so here's how it usually goes. You read a passage like this, and I can hear it. Like, I've been in enough counseling sessions to know. Here's, here's the response. The woman says, well, if he'd act a little bit more like Jesus, <laughs> then I'd be willing to respect him. And the man says, well, if she would respect me a little bit more, then I might be inclined to love her like Jesus. Listen, somebody has to make the first move. I don't care what your family situation is. I don't care where where your marriage is at. You have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the identity of Christ. You have everything you need to make that decision to do the right thing regardless of what the other person has done. It's a concept. Look it up, Luke 6. Jesus said, love your enemies. That's why I know every marriage can survive. If Jesus says, love your enemies, then surely you can love a person you thought you loved earlier. (laughs) It's well documented in this very pulpit some of the struggles that Amy and I have had. I am punctually challenged. Yes, I'm late, and my wife is always on time. This is a problem. I love her. I appreciate her. She has so many virtues, so many awesome character qualities, but she is disorganized. I like everything to have a place. In my perfect world, everything has a place and everything in its place. But I've chosen to have her instead of my perfect place. That's what love is. Now, I've tried to get both, my perfect place and her. (laughs) I don't think it's going to happen. We're 27 years into this thing. I think it's over. (sighs) 
But here's the point. Here's the point. Which is, this is what identity in your family and in your marriage and, and what we have, to, we have to come to. Marriage is about majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. Don't let the little stuff get you. There's only about three or four things worth fighting about. Fidelity in marriage. That's important. You screw that one up, you're, you're in trouble. Maybe child rearing, that's significant. You gotta agree on child rearing. Maybe finances, okay, that's, those are maybe worth wrestling over and fighting about. Everything else doesn't matter. It's laundry, stop it. <laughs> Some of you are so fired up to get married as soon as you can, whoa. It's a significant idea and it's so important that we understand that there should be some compatibility. I believe everybody can remain married. The only question you have to answer is, how hard are you willing to work? That's why you need, that's why you need premarital counseling. That's why you need other people to speak into your life. Everybody's all in a hurry to get married. Did you know the second marriages are 70% failure rate? Whoa. Pull it back. Let's, 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 be, let's consider um, what marriage is really about. It's not about you. Actually, we read it a few minutes ago, and it's how Jesus treats us. He unlocks our potential. And I think that marriage is about unlocking the other person's potential. What you see, what God has done, what his purpose is in her or his life, that's what you're into it's hard enough to figure out a, how to build a healthy marriage and then these tiny, super needy, super expensive little people start showing up. Number three, your kids, your kids discover their identity in Jesus with your help. Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 19 says, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your forehead. teach them to your children, talk, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Listen, it's more than just church services, as important as church services are. It was never an option in my home. If the church was open, we were there. <laughs> But it's more than church going, it's more than Christian activity. It's when you walk along the road, it's when you're driving to ball practice, it's when you're driving to school, parenting along the way, on the journey. So much, many of us want to parent by correcting. And that's, the, that's our best parenting skill. If your best parenting skill is correcting, you're in trouble. Because it's the non-confrontational moments that really matter. Take them on a date, go swimming, see a movie, but then talk about it. Spend time at the dinner table talking. Let bedtime be a leisurely discussion. I know there's chaos before bed uh, for so many uh, of the young families, but, but there's, there's, there's something about this that they start to open up at night. <laughs> I've never been so tired than when my teenagers would just stay up so late and then want to talk. 11.30, midnight, I'm like, come on, I gotta get up in the morning. But I let it go, why? Because I want to connect with them. Talk to them in those non-confrontational moments. Because it's really about quantity time, not quality time. You know why? Quantity time, because you never know when the quality's gonna show up. You gotta have a lot of quantity. That's what it's about. It's about being with them often. And look, here's the problem. As a parent, you start to let your kids define you. 
So if they act up, you think bad about yourself. You're wandering into bad territory there. You are not defined by your kids, right? They're going to go through phases. There's, there's a lot of pressure there, but they're in the process of becoming who they are. And interestingly enough, you are in the process of becoming who you are. You realize it doesn't stop for a long time. Number four, your teenage years are pivotal in the formation of your identity. Your teenage years are pivotal in the formation of your identity. I want to talk to all the teenagers in the room. I understand that there is a serious pathway that, that happens as you travel down this journey of life in the teen years and even into the, the, the early 20s. There's a, a defining that happens. There's a, there's a wrestling. There's a formation that's going on, and it's tough. It's hard. No one should tell you any different, but, but we're all supposed to help one another. Parents, there's a process by which they go through this independent streak. Stephen Covey talks about it like this. He says, every child is dependent for a long time, and then they begin to exert their independence somewhere in those teenage years, and we call it rebellion. Most of the time, it's not rebellion. It's simply them expressing their independence. They're becoming a real human. <laughs> not that children aren't real humans. That was, that was cruel. <laughs> that was cruel. They're becoming an adult. They're becoming adults, and adulting is hard. And so there's this process where you go from dependence to independence, and that's just, there's this journey, and they have to express it, and you have to learn how to interact with them as they're doing that. And then you want them, you don't want to squash them, you want to train them, you want to, you want to challenge them, you want to discipline them, but then you got to realize that what's coming is interdependence, where they realize, oh, dad does know something. Mom, mom has some wisdom. Interdependence, I don't need to be an isolated individual, I want to be part of this family. As screwed up as it is, I love this family, and I want to be part of this. And that interdependence is what God had in mind for extended families. And adult privileges come with adult responsibilities and parents, as parents, we want to entrust them with as many privileges as they can be entrusted with, as much as they can handle. Now, here's the problem. Many of you are still dealing with issues that you faced in your teenage years. They still roll around in here. I want to encourage you that Jesus can take care of that. Maybe not, maybe, maybe not in a way that you think he should, but he can redefine, he can rewire what's going on up here. He really can. And it, it's about being in him. Now, I'm, I don't have time for the rest, so I'm going to let you fill out these final blanks so you don't freak out after church. Because I want to end with the story of the prodigal son. And some of you know this story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son says to his dad, I want all the money now. Which is, in that culture, was the same as saying, I wish you were dead because I don't need you. Give me, give me all your money. Give me the inheritance. Give me the inheritance you already have for me. And he goes up and he spends it on wild living. He goes crazy. He goes so crazy, he runs out of money. He finds himself in a pig pen. He doesn't have any food. He wants to eat what the pigs are eating. He thinks to himself, I, I think my, my dad's servants live better than this. So, so, so get this. The first mindset he has is of an orphan. I want to take care of me. I don't have anything to do with my family. 
He's an orphan mindset. I don't need my dad. I don't need my mom. I don't need my parents. I don't need this family. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. And there's an orphan mentality. And so many of you are wrestling with an orphan mentality. You think you got to do it all. You, think, you, you don't think you need people and you feel the pressure of producing for yourself. He thinks those himself in the pig pen. He said, I'm going to go back to my, my dad and convince him to take me in as a servant because I'm certainly not worthy to be a son. He goes back, he can't even get the words out, and his dad just hugs him. His dad's waiting for him there. He sees him, the Bible says, from a long while, and he comes and he hugs him, and he says, bring the robe and bring the ring and bring the shoes, and we got to celebrate this guy because the son who was lost is now found. He can't even get the words out. His father doesn't want him to be a servant. He wants him to be a son. In fact, the father never saw him as anything other than a son. So you have to understand you are a daughter. No matter what journey you've been on, no matter what chaos you've endured in your family, God has an identity for you that's pivotal to your family. And he wants you to influence. He wants you to understand who you are as a daughter, as a son. And when you get that, suddenly you, you get authority. Suddenly, you get courage. Suddenly, there's something that happens, and it's so crazy because the older son, he'd worked all his life up to that point for his dad, and he's not at the party. They're throwing a party for the youngest son. The older brother is in the field, and he comes in, he hears the party and the music, and he's like, Dad, you never did this for me. You never gave me even a, a goat or, a, or a, 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 what does he say, a calf? Or something? I can't remember. You didn't give me any parties. <laughs> and it's so amazing what the father says to him. Look at what it says in verse 30. He says, but when your son, this son of yours who squandered your property and prostitutes come home, you kill the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. And notice this, everything I have is yours. See, both sons didn't understand who they were. Neither son understood their identity. The one who squandered it and the one who worked, he saw himself as a servant. He never really got the fact that he was a son. Listen, you got to get the fact that you're a daughter, you're a son, you're a child of God, and he has a plan and a purpose for restoring and redeeming your family situation. Close your eyes, bow your heads. We're going to come to the Lord's table. And I want to come to this table over the last few minutes because I want you to see, I want you to think about this. Just put your stuff aside for the next five minutes, all right? We're going to finish this. Because the table of the Lord is where we meet Jesus and then become filled with him. It's the bread. It's the cup. The bread represents the body of Christ for the healing of our soul. And we take it in, we, we ingest it, we digest it, it becomes part of us. He wants to be in you, and he wants you to be in him. The cup represents his forgiveness. No matter what you feel like as a dad or a mom or, or, or a divorced person or a, or, or a single person or what, a grandma, a grandpa, or a teenager, no matter where you've come from, no matter what, perspective you see your family from. God has forgiveness and healing 
available for you at this table. And I want you to come and see yourself relinquishing control and receiving his blessing, being filled with him and finding your identity in him, in Christ. Father, we come to you and we come to this table because we believe in what you've done on the cross. You took our sins upon yourself. We were separated and you drew us to yourself. Father, you, you drew us to yourself with the work of Christ. And now we respond. Jesus died for our sins and then he was raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit that is available to us. And so by the power of God's Spirit, I pray that we would make decisions today to let you define us, to let you create our identity. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for being here with us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, we want to help. You can find info about groups, teams, and other things happening at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. Have a great week.